Coming up this week, Nick is joined by Rod Lyle and Nate Hayes to talk all about various pathway events going on for future ICC global tournaments. But first, a couple of messages. First up this week, Emerging Cricket turns three. A huge thank you to every single one of you, listeners, readers and fans for being part of the journey. With a reach of over 15.3 million of you across social media, never let anyone tell you that no one cares about associate cricket. And as always, a shout out to our Patreon supporters who help us do what we do. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Emerging Cricket. Also, we've wrapped the first round of the T20 World Cup being held in UAE and Group B in Oman. A full 90-minute special on all of that, so make sure to get across that once you've finished this week's episode. And we will talk about the World Cup in more depth next week. Up next, though, Nick, Rod and Nate go around the world to wrap the news in the emerging game. Welcome listeners, as always, to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm your host, Nick Skinner, and with poor old Daniel Beswick inundated with work at his role during the World Cup, and Tim busy on Vanuatu duties. It's just me tonight, but I'm joined by two special guests, uh, Emerging Cricket's Netherlands correspondent, Rod Lyle. Welcome, Rod. Hi, hi, Nick. Hi, listeners. Great to be here, as always. And completing the trio tonight is our man in the USA, Nate Hayes. Nate, how's uh, North Carolina? Yeah, it's, it's starting to cool down a little bit. We're moving into fall right now. Cricket is wrapped up here. We just finished our... My team lost in the, in the finals this past weekend, so that was uh, disappointing. <laughs> but uh, it's going great. Yeah, it's great to be joining both of you guys. Yeah, one of my favorite things in North America, Canada, the USA, is just the coming of uh, fall, as you call it, or, or autumn, and all the beautiful leaves turning orange. It's just a really nice time of year over there, and uh, various holidays and, and whatnot associated with it. Uh, but yeah, in, in your neck of the woods, the America's qualifiers just been run and done in Mexico. Uh, it was originally scheduled to be in Canada, I believe, but got rearranged due to various COVID considerations. Ran from the 18th to the 25th of October. It was a double round robin format and the USA came out on top. They claimed the only qualifying slot from the regional final as it was. Brazil was second, made waves at the tournament, beat Canada twice. Canada, uh, pretty bad performance all up. We, we can talk about that in a minute, but uh, yeah, lost to Brazil twice, managed to beat the USA somehow once and uh, poor old Argentina bringing up the rear didn't look like winning a game and they finished on no points at all. Uh, so Brazil, the breakout stars of this tournament for sure, but just on the US, tell us about their success here, Nate. They finished five and one. Uh, the one loss, as you mentioned, was against Canada where, with uh, Canada batting first. The tournament was was held in Mexico, as you as you mentioned, at the Reforma Club. And it was very low scoring tournament, which meant that fielding could really stand out. You know, any runs you could save could really help your team. And that was just what Brazil would have wanted. Of course, they they had a hard time batting there considering their relative inexperience. But the wicket was up and down. And USA really shouldn't have lost a game. The game they did lose to Canada, they were missing their top two bowlers. And uh, they dropped Divya Saxena early in the innings, who went on to score, was it 40? Um, And Canada set a target of 86 in the first innings. USA lost by seven runs, finishing the chase 78 for seven. Well, yeah, they were missing, USA were missing uh, 
Tadani and Tara Norris or Tara Norris. Sorry, I see that name and I, I want to pronounce it like Americans. Well, she's an American for cricket purposes. So, yeah, yeah, she was born in Philadelphia. She actually played in the 100 and she plays for Sussex. So she was excellent. She was brilliant in the tournament. And um, Suhani Tadani was pretty much the, the standout bowler. For USA along with her taking eight wickets in five games at an economy of 1.63. Uh, Gargi Bugle, 18 years old, she was the second leading scorer behind Suxena and she led USA in runs with 95. So, so you can see there 95 runs in six innings. You can see how difficult it was to bat there. The average first innings in the entire tournament was 70 and a half runs from all teams at 7.75 wickets. USA's Average open when they batted first, which was only twice, their average was 101.5 with eight wickets lost. So you can see USA was about 30 runs better with the bat than the other teams on average. And but with the ball, they were just about they were very similar when they bowled first. They allowed 66.25 for 7.75 wickets, which was the, the average, the wickets there. And they were only better by about four runs. So you could see when they didn't have Tadani and Tar Norris, they were relatively hittable and Canada took advantage of the drop and beat them. So yeah, USA probably, they couldn't afford to be missing their two best bowlers that game and Canada made, made them pay. But yeah, it was a great tournament from what I saw of it. Peter De La Pena did an excellent job covering it as he always does. And Andrew Leonard on comms was, was brilliant. And honestly, one of the other things that impressed me about it was the social media coverage of it from USA side of things was very, very good. I really appreciated that because it was all the games were in the middle of my work day. So I, I got updates regularly via social media on what was going on when I couldn't have the game on. And uh, I think that just kind of speaks to the improvement of quality in administration here and just, you know, in in every little aspect of cricket you mentioned well, we're going to talk more about Canada's uh, issues and how USA ran a national kind of a selection. Uh, well, they ran the national championships for the women's. They're going to run that for men soon. But that definitely helped them. They, they had nine debutantes on the team. Six of them were teenagers and five of them from the Bay Area. So they those will always practice together. So USA's women's has really taken a massive leap in about a year's time. And that's because of the plan put forth by the administrators and and the coaching staff and stuff. So it's uh, the, the women have definitely bought into Bert Cockley's training regimen for conditioning and strength. And uh, it's an exciting time. Yes, it was disappointing. They lost that one game to Canada. There was some talk about whether or not they were really focused that game, but missing their top two bowlers. That's, that's something that has to be considered. And yeah, there was, that game happened to be <laughs> played at the same time as the Pakistan India game. And there was some, Peter Delapena mentioned that there was a little bit of distraction on on uh, USA's part as some of the players were maybe a little more worried about the score of that game <laughs> or worried worried at all about the score of that game I should say, um, which shouldn't shouldn't have taken Canada lightly. But but overall it was it was excellent. It shows that that USA women are in are stepping in the right direction and it, and it juxtaposes really well against or well really poorly if you're the US men's team against the men's selection recently of their T20 side for the qualifiers in which the men pretty much selected only one real debutante in the 14 man squad after having a massive minor league cricket tournament they selected only one really new player in Trinson Carmichael who bowled very well in the minor league tournament but there were a few other standout performers that everybody noticed that weren't in the t20 team and so so yeah the women's team really juxtaposes well 
where they look very, very good compared to that decision making, which is kind of like more of the same for USA. Yeah, I, I read a um a very good Peter Delapena article slash rant about the contrast there and and how the Americans in their talent search, um, you know, they ran a comprehensive national selection process and they actually got a bunch of young American players instead of sort of relying on the same old tired ex full member faces and and you know it, it showed they were a lot more energetic in the field than Canada and yeah look as a Canadian fan I'm yeah just not very happy with what they're doing here and honestly I mean Brazil are one of the success stories of the women's game and you know we've talked about them a lot on the podcast and I'm happy for their success I think it's great that they're making so much progress but Canada really need to do some soul searching they've you know they've neglected the women's program for as long as they've had one there's just no effort in Canadian domestic cricket they're, to... not unique in that, though. they're one of the worst current examples perhaps but it's even been true of some of the full members in the past that they've not invested in their women's programs. They are now, but they, right. they haven't in the past. And I, I have been absolutely delighted at seeing what's been happening with Brazil. I tweeted during the week that I had been saying for years and years that the ICC should be investing in Brazil rather than worrying about China or indeed the United States in some ways. Because from a cricketing point of view, I think there's no doubt that Brazil has so much going for it in terms of climate, in terms of the background of the population, in terms of all kinds of things. If cricket could just make a breakthrough in Brazil, I think it would be a huge gain for the world game. And I think it's wonderful that it's happening at the moment through the women. I mean, yeah, they were they were really impressive. And the, the, the fielding was just top quality. And it showed really, it showed how far you can go by, you know, recruiting some athletic girls and, and training them in the basics of cricket and then going from there. And the fact that they beat Canada twice, whereas the Canadians, oh, they just don't do that. They don't, there's, there's nothing. The, you know, right. You look at the American selection process and you compare it to what they did in Canada. They, they had, I think it was about four matches on a very dodgy pitch in King City. And that was in August. And that was over one weekend. I mean, I guess the pitch in Mexico was, was kind of dodgy too. So maybe that was good practice. But, you know, it was nothing like the national talent search, that, you know, like four matches in Toronto on a weekend and that's it. And, and I mean, that's, that's good for Canada. And so, I mean, that should tell you how bad they usually are. And it's frustrating because for so long, the American administration was such a, you know, high profile disaster that Cricket Canada could kind of sail by just being a bit feckless and not really doing anything. And no one noticed. But now that the Americans, I mean, they're still a lot of issues in American cricket, but looking looking at the results on the field, I don't think I'm in a position to point any fingers at the moment. So Canada really, they need to take some uh, some pointers from what the Americans are doing. And that's, you know, pretty depressing that we've got to a stage where, where we're, you know, I'm saying that. But with, with the men's game, it kind of takes care of itself. They've got a thriving scene in Southern Ontario and, you know, some decent leagues out west in the prairies. So, you know, the administration's, abject laziness is covered by the fact there's just a pretty good player pool on the men's side but for the women they actually need to make some effort and they just don't you know brazil's batting clearly needs some work but their their fielding is top notch right and so the fact that canada you know why aren't we recruiting athletes why aren't we focusing resources on because as i said the the men's side pretty much looks after itself and and it's not like all these leagues are just gonna stop existing if we redirect resources into the women's game so why not do that the other thing to notice is that the the brazilians twice beat argentina a country with a with a long, long, much longer cricketing history than than Brazil, a country which was playing 
first class cricket 100 years ago and which both in the men's in the men's game has gone backward and where clearly the women's game is not as strong as one would hope either they've got turf squares they've got a lot of things going for them it's a very very small and rather ghetto like cricket community in Argentina but even so it's 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 disappointing that they weren't more competitive in this tournament yeah I mean Argentina have been sort of on the on the downward path for a while now and, and it is a shame and Brazil have been beating them consistently at sort of regional level um, but yeah I don't know I mean look obviously I'm Canadian so this is going to be on my mind but you know why why are the administrators in Canada not you know, go poach Julia Price or, or, or better yet, go find a coach that you can get for a few years and they'll invest in the cricket and look for some advice from other countries that have implemented successful program like what Brazil's done. I'm filling in for Bez, so I'll make a Simpsons reference here. And, you know, it's just like Agnes Flanders, you know, they've, they've, they've tried nothing and they're all out of ideas. And it's just so frustrating that they're, they're doing the same thing again and again and again. And other teams in the region are overtaking them. And look, Divya Saxena had a really good tournament. She was the top run scorer for the whole tournament with 180 runs. She was the only batter with, with over 100 runs of any team. But when your talent pathway is basically hoping that an ex-Kenya international moves over to Canada for work, that's not sustainable. You need to find people who are actually playing locally. And if there aren't any people playing locally, which, by the way, I don't believe in the slightest because the USA gave the same nonsense excuses for years. And then, hey, presto, as soon as you run a credible domestic talent search, look at all these good players who've come out of the woodwork. So, But even if there aren't any players in Canada, the administration's job is to get people playing cricket and they're just not doing that. So, yeah, very, very frustrating performance from Canada. That freak win against the US notwithstanding. Yeah, that... that you're right. Right now, the way things, the way that the region is moving, Canada's being left behind because of what USA has done in just a year uh, under Julia Price, who has some excellent ideas, and she's a big part of what USA did. She's a big reason why USA, you know, has the strategy that they have. And like you said, go get somebody like that who's got a good vision of how to do this. And and in Canada, it's it's you know, USA is really spread out you know geographically so is canada canada is too yeah yeah but it's kind of like a straight line too you know it's all around the border well that's true yeah <laughs> but yeah there, I mean, there's there's a few clearly defined hot spots in canada which they could set something up and, and do a talent search like like usa did so, so they really need to get on that but yeah and, and we were talking you were talking about brazil's fielding you know i want to point out that i feel like in the last year and a half in this covid era i guess last year because first uh, six months nobody was playing anything but there have been a lot of tournaments played on, in, in situations where the pitch is it's not just a you know a tarmac it, it's going to be a bit of a uh a battlefield it's, it's going to be a bit of a minefield so fielding matters even more than it ever has probably around the world in every single yeah, that's a really region you know like cpl for example is playing 32 games at one venue right now because of covid and so you're having lower scores fielding matters even more what brazil's doing focusing on that and also fielding is where your team actually works together you know it's the teamwork aspect of, the, of uh, cricket they excel at that they excel at that team spirit and um it really showed up in this tournament. They, they, they fielded extremely well. USA lost their game because of, pretty much because of a drop catch and, and they struggled batting in that game. But yeah, you, you just can't, you can't miss your chances. You have to take your chances right now. And with uh, Nick, you know, you love wicket keeping, you love wicket keepers, wicket keepers, in my opinion, have never been more important 
in T20 cricket than they are right now because of just stopping a buy here and there, things like that, little things. Well, especially at this level, yeah. Yeah, the little things that all add up at this level in the low-scoring game, when, when the first innings averages 70 runs, <laughs> every run in the field matters. So Brazil, you know, it's paid off that they focus on that, and it shows. And every team should be focusing on that. And USA's fielding was much improved over how it's been in the past, especially with all these young players chipping in. Asani Bakela had some amazing throws that we we hadn't really seen before from the USA women's team. Some of the plays that they were that these fielders were making, and it was it was very exciting cricket. Even though it was low scoring, it was very exciting. There's, there were run out chances all over the place because teams were always under pressure. Uh, you know, I really kind of enjoy these these lower scoring games. Games because of that because fielding matters more but yeah it, so to your point Canada go get some athletes get some you know convert players if you can or I'm sure there's people out there playing cricket that you're not that you're not keeping an eye on go find some people who are suited for the game today yeah exactly and you talk about the um <laughs> the excitement of the fielding side of things uh, we can't really look past that crazy game the, the second loss that Canada suffered against Brazil where they had five wickets in hand and they needed three runs off the last over and <laughs> they lost five wickets in an over which is the first time that's ever happened in uh, in five consecutive balls yeah, the first time that's ever happened in international cricket. And that was just because the Brazilians were so good in the field. They were putting pressure on Canada and they drew the false shots. You know, I, the the hat-trick, two bolds and a, and a good catch from Roberta Moretti, who, uh, as we all know, has uh, taken social media by storm with her you know, her lockdown training and, and various other things. And, and you know, she was just a really good presence in the field and, and uh, around the team. And, and you know, the, the, as you said, the team spirit that was coming out of those girls was amazing and, and showed the way for everyone. And But yeah, so the, the hat trick in the middle of the two runouts just goes to show how important fielding was and the fact that they could defend three off the last over with five wickets in hand. That was obviously an amazing sort of freak event in cricket but it was all put together by the fact that they were doing so well and you know they were executing the basics right on on a you know pretty tricky surface and you don't defend three in an over on the last over of the game you don't do that unless you believe you can do it yeah you know every one of them believed they could and that's a big lesson i know i bowled overs where i you know i bowled a last over of a game once where it was like 12 to win and i was like well i'm doomed (laughs) So good for them, you know, that they that they believe in each other to that degree. And they actually, you know, they willed that to happen. It was pretty remarkable. Uh, yeah. So as, as we said, USA through to the global uh, women's qualifier. It will be interesting to see how they go there with these, uh, you know, young crop of, of talented players. And um, just a quick shout out to Mexico and a friend of the pod, Craig White, with, uh, you know, the, the Reformer Club putting on a good show. The pitch, as we said, a bit dodgy. So hopefully they can learn from this and work it out. But, you know, it'd be good to see more of these events spread around the regions instead of just always being in you know one or two countries so uh yeah great great effort from mexico um moving to the regional final for europe which was a four-team tournament originally there were meant to be 18 teams playing in the sub-regionals but they were cancelled due to the just the the lack of runway from various things being postponed and, and pushed around due to covid so denmark germany italy and jersey were the four teams playing in the Europe final. It was a double round robin again. And the top two teams went through to the global qualifiers for next year's T20 World Cup. And this is on the men's side, of course. Jersey went through undefeated. Germany went through as the second place team on three wins and three losses. Italy came third. 
Uh, also with three wins and three losses, just behind on net run rate. And Denmark, which we can talk about in a minute, but they had a pretty poor campaign. They've lost all six of their matches and, yeah, they, they had some off-field drama as well. But uh, congratulations to Jersey. They were clearly the best team. They rarely looked threatened at any point throughout the tournament. And, and just looking back to the global qualifiers for the T20 World Cup that they played at, you know, they... they won three out of six games in their group stage and they only they missed out in the group stage on run rate and nothing else so they're a quality side Germany continued to show progress but couldn't quite compete with them they lost a close game but uh, ultimately uh, Jersey too good yeah I mean apart from the obvious story of Jersey going through uh, undefeated I think two stories have come out of that tournament one of them being the improvement of Germany who saw the challenge from Italy, both teams having a number of players with first-class experience who they drafted into their squad. And then the story, which was actually the story before the tournament started, of the disruption of the Danish squad, the selection issues that arose, the withdrawal of a number of key players, reportedly because it was decided to bring the former England test player Amjad Khan into the squad. And yeah, that was a preparation which clearly didn't give Denmark an ideal start. They battled gamely, but they failed to win a game. Uh, and given that Denmark had traditionally been one of the strongest countries on the European continent, uh, that will no doubt give a good deal of pause to, one would hope it would give a good deal of pause to the Danish Federation as they review the events of the last two or three months. But all credit to Jersey. They've got a good side. A well-balanced side, quite a lot of experience, but also some significant young players coming through. Jonty Jenner made the most runs in the tournament with 175, although 96 of those came from one innings. Ben Ward, Harrison Carlyon, the opener, also did well with the bat. And their leading their leading bowlers with 10 wickets apiece were Charles Pershard, the captain, and Ben Ward, which is an interesting balance of medium pace in, in Pershard's case and spin in Ben Ward's case. Two names to watch, I think, for the global qualifiers are the Tribe brothers, Zach and Asa Tribe. Zach had a uh, a better tournament than his brother, and he's somebody I think that we should be keeping an eye on for the future. Mm. For Germany, Germany have the benefit of, among others, Michael Richardson, the son of former ICC CEO Dave Richardson, who made 122 runs in the tournament. And Faisal Mubashir also had a, had a good tournament with the bat. And um, in the bowling, they had three spin bowlers who, who demonstrated the importance of spin bowling in the modern T20 game. Muslim Yar, Gulamam Ahmadi and Elam Barati. And Ahmadi and Barati went for under five and over, which is uh, no mean feat in T20 cricket, even in a tournament where, on the whole, a little bit like the, tour the women's tournament in Mexico, although not to the same degree, the scores were relatively low. On the whole, 120-130 was, was a good score on the Almeria pitch, which had also caused some problems earlier in the summer as well. So uh, it's not a pitch on which scoring is easy. And full credit to those batters who, who were able to score at anything over 100 Italy, disappointing, I think everybody would say. The standout was the opening batter, Grant Stewart, uh, who did go at 139.5 as a strike rate when nobody else was doing quite as much as that. So interesting tournament, a bit of a shift in the, in the European balance with Germany, whose cricket has, of course, expanded enormously in recent years, partly due to the influx of uh, refugees from Afghanistan who've 
created a lot of new clubs and joined existing clubs. So German cricket has grown substantially in the past few years. And one hopes that this is not just a one-off, but that German cricket will continue to develop and provide more competition for the other countries who have been more, perhaps more traditionally among the leaders in Europe, such as Denmark and, um, and Italy. Well, and, and Germany only just missed out on making it to the 2019 global qualifiers. I think they were one or two runs short on, on net run rate. And, and they yeah, found we themselves in a net run rate situation this time in their final match, although mm. it was one which worked very strongly in their favour. So they weren't, they were not, I think, never in any serious danger of losing out on net run rate again. Uh, although they did have a little wobble in the middle of their innings uh, and it took a late flurry to get them through and over the line. Yeah, yeah Dieter Klein hit. Uh, 28 off, I think, 15 balls or something to, to to steady the nerves after they lost sort of three or four early wickets. And the Italians had to keep them to 90 or 91. Um, Germany lost in the end by one run. Yes. But they'd done enough eventually, with thanks to Dieter Klein, who otherwise had a fairly quiet tournament, I think. But he certainly played a crucial innings at that moment in order in order to get them over the line and into the global qualifiers. Yes, and, and it'll be interesting to see how they go. And obviously the format's been sort of rejigged and, and we might talk about that in, in a little while. But uh, it was interesting just looking at the guys you talked about with county or first-class experience. Some of them stood up. Richardson hit that uh, half-century against... Denmark and and he looked all right but you know looking to Italy and they're sort of the other side of that and they actually cobbled together quite a decent team out of you know Gareth Berg and some of his county mates were in the coaching setup as well and you know they they looked pretty good on paper and then they just struggled a bit and you know I think Jade Dernbach is kind of uh, emblematic of that in that he had the worst bowling average and economy rate for Italy he got five wickets in across six matches he was pumped at the death. I remember seeing Jersey hit three sixes off and over against him. And, and, and notably by Dieter Klein in that crucial match as well. Yes. He had the worst economy rate of any bowler with more than eight overs and the, the very worst economy. You know, he was only slightly better than the very worst economy rate. So he was among the worst bowlers despite his full member experience. And I don't know if that's a commitment thing or if he's sort of lost a yard of pace. But, you know, looking at his career, even when he was playing for England, he really, I, I never really understood why he got so many games for England because he would frequently get just absolutely tonked at the back end and, and that continued. So I don't know if that's necessarily the best thing for Italy to be, you know, just bringing together some guys who happen to have played first-class cricket and have an Italian passport. But then again, you know, Gareth Berg's been a great servant of Italian cricket for a number of years now. So yeah, there's kind of a, you can see both sides of that in, in the same team. And I mean, maybe these players are genuinely better than anyone that could have come out of Italy. But on the other hand, could they have really been worse than almost the worst bowler at the tournament? It's very hard to get a fix on that, I think. I've been writing... Obviously, in the Eurorap uh, weekly reports that I've been writing over the summer for Emerging Cricket, I've been following as best I can the Italian domestic competitions. And the structure is really good. They've got 32 clubs in their top section who play in eight, four-team groups in every tournament. So they play a T20 Cup, they play a T20 League, I'm not sure what the difference is, and they play a 50-over competition. But the trouble is that you can't see, you can see which clubs are winning and you can see the total scores, but it's very hard to get a fix on who the standout players are. There's clearly a very large, as there is across the continent, a very large immigrant contingent in Italian cricket. 
but who the domestically based players are who uh, were kept out by the Bergs and the Stuarts and so on. It, it's hard to judge. And it would be very interesting to know more about who the big forces are in the Italian domestic game. Yeah, but the, the um, left-arm orthodox, Madupa Fernando, did quite well. I think he got nine or ten wickets and was among their better performers. So, you know, clearly guys who come through the domestic circuit can perform. And this is kind of something that is a recurring theme. Uh, Nate, you, we talked about the US men's side and, and uh, you know, Xavier Marshall is back in the team again, despite being quite bad for the USA. And um, I think it's just a, another example of associate selectors, you know, seeing a guy like Dernback, oh, well, he played for England, so he must be good, even if he isn't necessarily that good anymore. Right. And, and I think when you have a situation in a lot of cases where, um, I mean, I think sometimes you have to choose, like, for example, Xavier Marshall did perform very, very well in the minor league cricket uh, season, but we also had some domestic players that performed pretty much just as well as he did. So you could argue that Xavier earned his spot back in the team. His fitness has improved based on what I can see. But a lot of people think that the better thing to do in a case like that is to pick the domestic. If you have a domestic option or a more domestic option, I guess, then, you know, a lot of people feel there should be an obligation to pick that. Yeah. And in a way, the Danish story is a kind of poster child for that because although it's true that Amjad Khan is both a native-born Dane and playing currently in Danish domestic cricket, I'm sure that one of the reasons that motivated his selection at the last minute at such a huge cost in terms of other players pulling out was that he was somebody who had played international cricket for England and was a name and came with a reputation. And it turned out that he took three wickets, economy rate of 6.25 and scored 33 runs in four innings. So whatever motivated that decision, you have to say it didn't come off. Well, just on the Danish side, and and we can talk about the off-field stuff in a sec, but yeah, Amjad Khan, pretty underwhelming, honestly, especially after all the drama. But, you know, even if he'd been selected on merit, you'd think he was pretty anonymous. But then again, he's over 40 now and hasn't played counter cricket for a number of years. So would you really expect him to be as good as he was when he was playing for England? Probably not. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I think that it is a bit of a case of that just, oh, well, you know, he played a test match, so he must be better than any domestic options, but that's not necessarily true. And you did touch on it though, but the, the pitch was certainly taking spin more and, and potentially that was, you know, part of it for Dernbach and, and Khan. But yeah, look at looking at the Danish bowlers. They they were actually okay. They they bowled well. They threatened Jersey uh, in one of their games. Left arm orthodox Bashir Khan, who's been around for a while, he was steady, seven wickets. He was, you know, I, I mean, I've been impressed with him every time I've seen him bowl. He he just has a really good, nice, clean action and you know, keeps it simple, but you know, it's hard to get away. And Saif Ahmed, the the young offie, he was very good actually. Got I think he was the top wicket taker for them. He's been good for a while. He's a very good player, I think. And the one yeah. I I found interesting, who did actually come off to a degree with the bat, is. Delawar Khan, who's been making good runs in, in domestic cricket in Denmark and is is maybe somebody to watch for the future. Yeah, Delawar is an interesting one because he's sort of, he's still finding his role in the team. You know, in the past, he's batted quite far down the order and he's sort of been viewed as more of a bowler, but um, yeah, maybe he's going to make a, a Steve Smith uh, transition. But uh, uh, probably also worth pointing out while we're at it, it didn't help that Freddie Clocker uh, got injured about halfway through the tournament and, and so that certainly put a hole in their top order. But yeah, they, they did struggle. Syria Anand, who, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, was a, he, he grew up in India with Danish parents and he moved over a couple of years ago to Europe. I think he was going to try and play league cricket in England and then that fell through because of COVID. And 
Um, so he, he sort of holed up in Denmark and, and ended up playing for them. He looked quite good. He didn't score that many runs, but he, he looked comfortable at the crease. Very wristy, very good timing the ball quite well. Uh, so hopefully he's one that can produce over the next little while for Denmark. Um, but yeah, on the off-field stuff, you, you talked about it being about Amjad Khan. I've seen a letter from the players to the board uh, that was, was shared and were allowed to make it public. Basically, the players felt like they weren't being listened to, sort of is, is what it boils down to. I mean, the, the board originally selected a team and they all had to go and get time off work and school and, and whatnot because obviously they're not professionals and then and the new coach came in and wanted to change the team which you know that they'd been given assurances that as long as their performance didn't drop and and, you know barring no off-field incidents the team that was selected was the team that was going to the tournament and and then so the new coach comes in and tries to change the team which obviously didn't make the players who were selected happy because they'd made life plans in, in terms of their you know family and work and whatnot and then they've had that thrown out because of, of changes uh, subsequently so they weren't happy with that and then to sort of add insult to injury the, the players that were selected and parachuted into the team their, their domestic stats were worse than the players that they were replacing and you know <laughs> when you tell the players you know unless your form uh, decreases you're in the team and the, the players you know maintain their form and then get replaced by guys who are in worse form you know you can see why they're upset and and you know the the players side of the story at least is that the players that came into the team were coincidentally or maybe not coincidentally uh, both at the same club as the new coach so I mean there's there's a lot of acrimony going around and I mean they, they had this dispute but then the, the board reacted in a very bad way and and you know once the players had made their demands clear the board sort of stonewalled them and and it just looked very amateurish the way they handled it in terms of you know everyone's everyone's very unhappy and instead of trying to bring the temperature down it it looked like they were taking a more aggressive line and and I think that's very unhelpful in most situations, but especially when you've got basically half of a first-choice team sitting on the sidelines, you've got to look at yourself and, and think, it, was it really worth it? And, and I think it probably wasn't. And you know, guys like Hamid Shah and Nikolai Damgaard could have made quite a difference, especially with you know getting into second place. You know, Denmark, all things told, weren't that bad at this tournament. And if they had you know half a dozen better players in the team, I think they would have been pretty competitive. Yeah, no, I think there's no question that is the case. It seems to me that that it's a story which actually goes back to the break in continuity which came with the departure of Jeremy Bray because Bray and Clocker, I think, had a very clear development strategy, coaching strategy. They were working with the youth as well. Some of the younger players around Danish cricket have come through that experience. And I think the break in continuity with which came with Jeremy Bray's move to Vanuatu undoubtedly is one of the seeds of the problem which Denmark now faces. These things happen. I mean I'm not I'm not blaming Jeremy Bray. No, no, no. I mean it's a great get for Tim over in Vanuatu, but yes. Yeah, and you've got to be able to deal with these situations as a board. And I think you're absolutely right that the Danish board appears to have mishandled the situation. Again, they wouldn't have that entirely to themselves. No. And it's just frustrating because, you know, a lot of these boards, yes, they are run by amateurs who have lives and they can't necessarily uh, spend as much time as you would hope on it. But at the same time, you're, you're a small team in a, you know, in a small country in the case of Denmark. You, it seems to me that there is, is a huge difference between being a volunteer and being amateurish. Yes, yes. That's what I'm trying to say. I know that's what you're trying to say. 
Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. I think even as a volunteer, if you take on a responsibility like helping to run a national governing body of a significant international sport, even when it's a small country within that sport, you have an obligation to bring the kind of professionalism to your role as a volunteer that you would expect a full-time employee to have. Yes, exactly. And and I just think they haven't displayed that and it, it's just all been handled a bit amateurishly. And yeah, it's, it's very disappointing because, I mean, I, I lived in Denmark for a little while and, and I, you know, they're close to my heart and I really like this Danish team. I've met them a couple of times at, at tournaments and yeah. What is it's it just... about the countries you've lived in and what happens to their cricket? <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Better hope I don't move to the Netherlands, eh, Rod? No, 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 no. I think we can do without you. <laughs> <laughs> now we know how to sabotage the BCC. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mick, go to India. Just put me up in Mumbai for a few months. Yeah, that'll. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, as you say, there, there is a difference between being a volunteer and being amateurish, and it just really doesn't help when you've got limited resources to start with, and you're just picking fights with your players, and or you know, at best, you're not handling a fight very well. I'm not trying to ascribe blame, but it. You know... <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Shall we look at Jersey quickly? I think one interesting point is the the flotilla of spin options they had, and they really just choked off all of their opposing batsmen. They had a couple of leg spinners, a couple of finger spinners, just good variety. And, of course, Chuggy Pashad was um, leading very effectively as captain. I like his captaincy a lot. He's, he's aggressive, and he knows when to bowl himself. And he gave himself the last over against Denmark when they needed, I think it was sort of seven or ten off the last over, and he just bowled ball after ball in just unhittable areas and he's just really astute at when to deploy his players and he's constantly got a plan and and bowls to it and it's really impressive to see how a relatively small cricketing nation you know (laughs) only 100,000 people live in Jersey and and the fact they can put out a team this good none of the players individually are particularly world beating it's just that working together they are more than the sum of their parts which is it's it's a bit of a cliche in, in associate cricket but just the fact that they are well-led and well-drilled, I think they're, they're going to be a real threat at the global qualifiers again. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it has to do with the fact, in part, to do with the fact that cricket in Jersey does have deep roots. After all, Jersey is, in a certain sense, connected to the United Kingdom. And Jersey cricket has strong links with some of the southern counties. So they, they're not in the same situation as countries where cricket is a tiny minority sport. Um, they do have those advantages. Cricket is played at the major boys' secondary school, for example, and there's a strong link between between the Victoria College and adult cricket in Jersey. One of the major clubs is Old Victorians. So they have a grassroots basis. Yes, yeah, they have a good cricketing culture. and Which is not necessarily true of the other countries we're talking about. That's fair. They do have a good side. As I said, they've got younger players coming through. Mm. The under-19s played in their 40-over competition in preparation for the under-19 European qualifier. So they have good player pathways as the current pilot. Yeah, I think they're in a good spot. Let's be honest, they're a tax haven with lots of money, so that always helps uh, with with cricket facilities. Um, But uh, yeah... 
just reiterating, Jersey did go through unbeaten to the global qualifiers, joined by Germany. Uh, the global qualifiers will be held sometime early-ish next year, we believe, but uh, that's all still to be confirmed by the ICC. Uh, moving to Africa, which was the other qualifier being run at the moment, uh, Uganda dominated, really. They, they went through unbeaten in the first sub-regional being held in Rwanda. Of course, two sub-regionals and then the regional final all being played back-to-back in Kigali, which is uh, a good way of getting it all decided on the field instead of cancelling tournaments, as has happened elsewhere. But uh, Uganda through Group A undefeated. Uh, Ghana joined them uh, second on the table, followed by Malawi, Rwanda, Seychelles, Eswatini and Lesotho. So a big group. I think Uganda, probably a class above, they they finished with a net run rate of 4.6, had a lot of thumping victories. Uh, Ghana were better than expected. I think Rwanda probably were a bit disappointing. They probably should have beaten Ghana on the first morning. They were 2 for 100 after 12 overs, and then they only got to 153. And then Ghana were 3 for 19 and 5 for 70-odd. And yeah, they just let them get away. So that sort of set the tone for Rwanda. They lost games that they should have won. Oshid Tusiengi scored their first men's century against the Seychelles. He had a decent tournament, uh, but there was only one other 50 for Rwanda with Eric and Nia Mubago. So I think looking back, the hosts will be a bit disappointed, but uh, well done to Ghana. They're emerging as one of the contenders at the next level down in African cricket. So it'll be interesting to see how they go in the regional final and whether they can challenge for that one slot at the top of the, the group in uh, in the regional final. It's going to be tricky. You know, they've got Kenya and Nigeria already there, Uganda, and then one of Botswana, Cameroon, Mozambique, Sierra Leone, or Tanzania. So it'll be tricky for Ghana, but they're on the upswing. So yeah, that's going to be good for them. Just looking at a couple of their performers, they, they had three different guys taking five wicket hauls, including the top wicket taker, off spinner Samson Awea, a couple of seamers in Coffee Bagabena, who took their first international hat-trick, uh, and, and Rexford Bacon. Uh, Bacon was also their top run scorer, handy all-rounder. They had four guys with 100 runs, so it was, it was a good team effort with the bat and ball for Ghana. They're definitely, yeah, as I said, on, on the upswing. Malawi, you know, they beat Rwanda. Uh, they probably one to keep an eye on. It'd be interesting to see how they go. They, they recently uh, hosted a pretty decent domestic tournament. Uh, it, was, it was neat to see the Seychelles in a, in a competition, um, some islands off the coast of Africa, but uh, where's St. Helena? They have an airport now and they weren't in this tournament. No, they just they regularly don't appear. Well, yeah, because I remember Bez and I were very excited to see them play in the last round of sub-regionals. But, uh, Does that have to do with COVID, the, them just trying to mm, stay? Yeah, potentially they just shut up shop with the island being isolated. Yeah. But yes, yeah, Uganda, as I said, very dominant. They'll be one of the favourites in the regional final. Dinesh Nakrani, very impressive. Took 21 wickets, including two five-wicket hauls. One of which was uh, a six for seven, which was the second best T20I men's bowling figures. And the other containing a hat trick, Frank Nusabuga, though, their off spinner, 41 years old, with an economy rate of 2.45 across the tournament, the best of any bowler. And he's still going strong. And I, I, I love seeing Frank bowl. He, he just gets through his overs so quickly. He just hustle, hustle, hustles. And the batsman. So they don't have any time to think, you know, they just sort of get rushed and, and it's mind games, but it's great and I love it. And it's always good to see to see Frank doing well. Uh, Simon Sasazi, Ronek Patel looking good at the top of the order. Frank Akinkwaza, a young talent, uh, bashed it with the best strike rate for Uganda. So I think they're in pretty good shape. As I said, the next 
sub-regional Group B will be starting soon, played between the 2nd and 7th of November in Kigali, and that, of course, contains Botswana, Cameroon, Mozambique, Sierra Leone, and Tanzania, with two teams from that going through to the regional final, which is scheduled for the 15th to the 21st of November. So, by the end of November, we'll know who's coming through from Africa. And um, just as we're looking ahead to the global qualifiers, it's two groups of eight instead of the big 14-team sort of jamboree event. Uh, it's going to be split across two venues as far as we know. And, and One in February, one in May, as I understand it. Yes. Nothing's been confirmed, although a couple of leaks have sort of filtered out. But yeah, nothing's confirmed. So we shouldn't take it as gospel yet. Uh, but Oman, PNG, Netherlands, Ireland, Singapore, UAE, Nepal, Zimbabwe, Hong Kong, Philippines, Jersey, and Germany have all been confirmed so far, uh, which means we've got four teams to go in qualifying. Uh, Rod, what do you think? You know, how, how do you see it shaking out uh, early next year? Well, of course, we don't know how the two groups will be formed. One assumes that the four countries who are back in the qualifying business having failed to go through from what is laughingly known as the first round of the of the World T20, namely Ireland, the Netherlands, Oman and PNG. We assume that they will be split across the two groups and presumably the same applies to Nepal, UAE, Singapore and Zimbabwe. These things will no doubt be based on current rankings at whatever the cutoff point is. You would expect the four who didn't make it into the second phase of the current tournament to be strong contenders. But we know that Nepal are nobody's pushovers. UAE depends a lot what state their squad is in by the time they are playing in one of these tournaments. Uh, Zimbabwe can't be discounted. Of course, they were out of the previous qualifying program. So they, they'll be very keen to get back in being like Ireland, a full member who has to qualify. Singapore have had their moments in the past. Hong Kong have had a, a decent track record in the past. So it'll be, I think it'll be very interesting to see whether any of the less well-established countries are able to challenge and come through. We've seen from the self-destruction of the Dutch in the current tournament, uh, how quickly things can turn around and how the winners of the qualifying tournament can two years later, for a whole variety of reasons, fail to make it through from their group in the phase one. So who knows? T20 is, even on a good day, not easy to predict. Well, and just looking at the way it's been structured this time, of you know, two groups of eight with two teams qualifying from each group. Yeah, it's tough it's going to be really tough you know you lose a couple of games early and you're in a lot of trouble i mean you would think the guys that are qualifying back from the first round they'll be pretty good contenders again but as you say zimbabwe who were suspended at the time going to make it tough for everyone and png on the downward swing so yeah i think going to be exciting tournaments hopefully we uh get some words soon about where they're going to be and and a bit more information about the, the the structures and whatnot but uh yeah anything else we've got left well we could say a quick word about the the west asian sub-regional qualifier which is currently taking place which now that hong kong have gone through from the eastern sub-region uh, it's the winner of the uh, western sub-region who will go through to the global qualifiers. Uh, Saudi Arabia have started well with two wins and are currently, as we speak, uh, playing their third game against Qatar. But Kuwait, Qatar and Bahrain all look as if they are in with a chance. 
So it looks as if it could be quite a tight four-way battle for that one place in the global qualifiers next year. Yes, and um, one interesting little sort of uh, trivia bit that's come out of the this Western region qualifier is Andrew Berenger, who's popped up playing for Qatar. Uh, he played a couple of one-dayers for the UAE a few years ago, but he had also played under-19s cricket for Sri Lanka. So I'm not sure what's going on with the ICC eligibility criteria, because as far as I'm aware, you can only play for two teams and that certainly used to be the case yes yeah and it doesn't seem to have been updated so um yeah here's here's Beringer turning out for three i don't know i mean are they going to declare the matches invalid or you know have they just subsequently changed the rules but not told anyone i, I don't know very very strange situation who knows, who knows? <laughs> yeah. maybe we'll find started. out and we'll wrap the results fully once they come in obviously we're recording before the tournament's finished and and, you know it's hard to keep up with all the cricket that's being played at the moment but uh thanks a lot for joining me rod it's a pleasure and of course nate hayes yeah no problem It's, it's great talking to both of you guys